If you have your Bibles this morning, please turn with me to Romans chapter 6. There's men in the aisles here. If you don't have a Bible, please raise your hand and they will be happy to give you a Bible. I'm going to be looking at the text quite a bit this morning, so grab one of those as they pass by. And if you don't have a Bible, please keep that Bible as our gift to you. I was going to say open your Bibles, your iPhones, or your PDAs, or whatever electronic device you've got out there, but uh, I'm sure there's plenty of different ones. Romans chapter 6 this morning. It's good to be with you. I'm going to be reading the chapter this morning. Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like this. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you should obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourselves to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness, For sin shall no longer be your master, because you're not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. 
When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Though we know that all scripture is God-breathed, and as Paul says, is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, some books of the Bible have been especially influential in the history of the church and probably in our own individual experience as Christians. At this point in the message, I was going to talk about Martin Luther, the man who we credit with uh, launching the Protestant Reformation in 1516. But Pastor Ken stole my thunder in his sermon last week with all he had to say about Luther. Actually, the fact is, it's very difficult to talk about the book of Romans without mentioning Martin Luther. That's because Luther's experience as an unsaved Roman Catholic closely parallels Paul's experience as an unsaved Jew. Both were trying to become acceptable to God by their good works. Here's what Luther said about the book of Romans. This letter is really the chief part of the New Testament and is truly the purest gospel. It is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but also that he should occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. Boy, that's uh, quite a commendation, isn't it? Like all good Catholics, Luther, as a young man, believed that salvation could only be obtained through the Roman Catholic Church by a combination of faith and good works. When he was 22 years old, Luther became an Augustinian monk. He entered the Augustinian religious order for one reason. He was concerned about his own salvation. Luther went on to study and earned a doctorate in theology and became a professor at the University of Wittenberg. And there he lectured on the book of Romans. And by the grace of God, he discovered in Paul's writing the truth of justification by faith alone, apart from works. In short, he got saved. He broke with the Roman Catholic Church, and as they say, the rest is history. Many people have been saved through the book of Romans. Why is that? Well, maybe Luther was right when he said, this letter is really the purest gospel. In Romans chapters 1 through 8, Paul sets forth the gospel, more specifically the doctrine of salvation. He does so in a very logical, systematic fashion. He expounds the two most important aspects of the doctrine of salvation justification 
in chapters 1 through 4, and sanctification in chapters 5 through 8. Justification, as Pastor Ken has been telling us the last few weeks, is the instantaneous act of God in which he forgives us of our sins based on the death of Christ and which he imputes or credits to us the perfect righteousness of Christ based upon his own perfect obedience during his earthly sojourn. And that, brothers and sisters, is how we get to heaven. The righteousness of Christ is credited to us. God views us who have trusted Christ as perfectly righteous because we are, as Paul says, in Christ. We have a perfect standing, a perfect position before God. But that's not all there is to salvation. God desires more for us and more from us. He not only wants us to be declared righteous in a legal sense, God also wants to make us righteous, actually righteous, righteous or holy in our persons. God wants to change us into the image of Jesus Christ. He wants to transform us from within. This is sanctification. The word sanctify, I'm sure you've heard many times, means to set apart. In this case, to be set apart from sin and to become holy. For the Christian whose standard of righteousness, standard of uh, holiness is Jesus, sanctification is essentially becoming more like Jesus. Another way to speak of sanctification is Christian growth or maturity. The Bible constantly exhorts us to put away sin, to say no to sin, and to make progress in holiness. In sanctification, God makes us holy in our persons so that we no longer live as we once did under the power of sin or under the dominion of sin. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, it is God's will that you be sanctified. When a person gets saved, we expect that person to change. We expect their life to change. We expect them to turn from their sinful lifestyle and to begin to obey God by obeying His Word. We we expect a changed life that moves in the direction of holiness, sanctification. And that's what we want to look at this morning, sanctification and how we get it. Let's pray and ask God to help us this morning. Our Father, as we look at this chapter in your word this morning, please, please grant to me the grace to set forth the apostles' teaching clearly and correctly on this vital and essential subject of sanctification. May each one of us have hearts that are open and eager to hear the word of God. 
May the Holy Spirit do his work in us to bring about our willing obedience to your word. And as a result, may the triune God receive glory and honor through Christ our Lord. Amen. When I was a boy growing up in the state of Virginia, I occasionally went to Sunday school at a Southern Baptist church. Uh, thinking, uh, thinking back about it now over these years, I, I don't remember how much I really understood about the gospel or exactly what I was taught at Sunday school. In fact, I don't really think I understood all that much about the Bible. I do remember one thing. I remember filling out an information card. Every time, every year we moved up to a new class in Sunday school, we filled out this information card. And there were always these two boxes on the card. One box read Sunday school member, and the other box read church member. And it was frequently pointed out that the way you become a church member was by accepting Jesus Christ as your personal savior, being baptized, and walking the aisle. I always felt like a, sort of like a second class Christian, sort of like a second class citizen, so to speak, because I couldn't check both boxes, Sunday school member and church member. I was pretty shy, and the, uh, the walk in the aisle part was pretty frightening to me. And the baptism part was pretty scary, too. When I was 12 years old, I believe it was, the pastor of our church came to visit me one afternoon when I got home from school. I don't remember that much exactly about the visit, but I'm sure he presented the gospel to me. And I did make a profession of faith. I was soon baptized, I walked the aisle, and joined the church. I think I read my Bible for a little while after that, but I didn't really understand much of what I was reading. After that, I only went to Sunday school occasionally, uh, usually when my mother made me go to, with her to Sunday school. But eventually I stopped going altogether. I don't think I demonstrated any real lasting evidence of spiritual life or spiritual growth. My life was not characterized by holiness, to say the least. <laughs> there didn't seem to be any particular evidence of sanctification taking place in my life at all. What happened to Bill Combs? Was I truly saved at that time? Was I actually justified? Looking back on it now, I would say probably not. Probably not. But why do I say that? Well, it's because of, or at least partly because of what Paul says here about sanctification in Romans chapter six. Perhaps you've heard the name B.B. Warfield. B.B. Warfield. He was an American theologian who lived 100 years ago. But those of us in ministry, we 
read his writings and we treasure what he wrote even to this day. This is what he said about Romans chapter 6. The whole sixth chapter of Romans was written for no other purpose than to assert and demonstrate that justification and sanctification are indissolubly bound together, that we cannot have one without having the other. What Warfield is saying is that sanctification, spiritual growth, always follows justification. Sanctification is not automatic, but it is inevitable. There's no such thing as a genuine Christian who is justified, declared righteous, who is not also being sanctified, made righteous. And Romans chapter 6 explains why that is true. And Romans chapter 6 makes me think that 12-year-old Bill Combs' profession of faith was unfortunately no more than that, just a profession. Let's look into Romans 6 and see what Paul has to say about sanctification. Paul says, first of all, and you shouldn't have an outline that uh, as you came into the door this morning, you might want to get that out if you've got one. Paul says, first of all, that believers have died to sin. Believers have died to sin. Look with me at chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Why would Paul imagine a situation where those who have been truly saved would, as he says, go on sinning or live in it, that is, live in sin? Well, believe it or not, there have been those who have argued that people who have trusted Christ and have been truly born again don't need to be concerned about sin any longer. They say that sanctification, that is holy living, is not necessary. They explain that a person who's been justified, that is, has all their sins forgiven, past sins, present sins, future sins, everything's forgiven, and that's true. When we're justified, all our sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven. And they say, therefore, the justified person is credited with perfect the righteousness of Christ, which is true. So someone might argue, if all that's true, there's no need to be concerned about sin in one's life now that we have a guaranteed ticket to heaven. But Paul strenuously objects to that line of thinking. He says this cannot be the case. This is not a possibility. Because, he says, all genuine believers have died to sin. But what in the world does Paul mean when he says in verse 2, we died to sin? Well, first of all, death to sin does not mean we become sinless. We don't become sinless. That's not what Paul means. But I'm sure I didn't actually have to tell you that. 
We will become sinless when we get to heaven or at the rapture, but not in this life. But believe it or not, there again have been those who have thought that this is exactly what Paul meant, that a Christian can become sinless in this life. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, believed exactly that. He says at one place in his writings, a Christian is so far perfect as not to commit sin. And the idea became the central teaching of early Methodism and what later came, on, came to be called the holiness churches. Now in order to maintain this erroneous idea of a sinless Christian, the definition of sin itself is deceptively limited to only intentional acts of sin. So only if we intend to sin is that really sin, supposedly. But the Bible will have nothing of this nonsense. The idea that a believer can become perfect or sinless is a delusion, no matter how one weakens the definition of sin. Believers will always struggle with sin in this life. And the apostle himself spends a great deal of time in the next chapter, Romans chapter 7, detailing and rehearsing his own personal struggle with sin as a believer. I like to put it this way, justification by faith, sanctification by struggle. We're called upon to do battle with sin every day of our lives. In chapter 8, Paul will say that you and I must mortify, we must put to death sin every day. There's no such thing as a sinless Christian in this life. So when Paul says that all believers have died to sin, he does not mean we can become sinless. Instead, he says, B, death to sin means we are no longer slaves to sin. We're no longer slaves to sin. Although we cannot and should not expect to become sinless, yet it is also true that we must not go on sinning or live in it. And living in sin describes a habitual lifestyle of sin, which is exactly how we lived before we trusted Christ. Paul said back in chapter 3 that we were under the power of sin before we were saved. And therefore, we lived a lifestyle of sin. Sin was the controlling force in our lives. In verse 14 of Romans 6, sin is said to be the unsaved person's master. Notice verse 6 of Romans chapter 6. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, that is, our old unregenerate self, so the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. And then notice in verse 17 he says, But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. The unsaved person is a slave to sin. They may think that they rule their own lives, but sin is their master. But the believers 
the believer has escaped slavery to sin because Paul says we have died to sin. That means we're now able to live in a way that's pleasing to God. Well, when did this death to sin that Paul talks about take place for the believer? Notice verse 3 of chapter 6. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Verse 4. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Water baptism does not save us. Let me say it again. Water baptism does not save us and Paul is not saying it. But Paul is using our water baptism as a symbol to represent something. A symbol to represent our conversion to Christ. The time when we repented of our sin and placed our faith in Jesus to save us. Baptism, water baptism, symbolizes our death to the old life of sin and our burial as proof of that death. Immersion in water symbolizes burial. Notice verse 6 again. Our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. Baptism symbolizes as we come up out of the water not only the end of the old life but the transition to a new life in which the believer is now called to live this new life. The new life is possible because you and I participate in the spiritual power of Christ's resurrection. Verse 4 says, Just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So not only have we been delivered from sin's tyranny, sin is no longer master over us, but we also have now been given a new power of obedience through our participation in the power of Christ's resurrection. This is exactly what we celebrate when someone is baptized at CBC. Do you remember what it's like at those baptisms when we've had them here? People are very happy People are very happy when someone is baptized in that tank behind me. There's a mood of joy. There's thanksgiving when the brother or sister comes up out of the water. Why is that? Because their baptism symbolizes their conversion to Christ. This baptism is their testimony of salvation. And we rejoice with them that they have been saved. They previously were going away from God, what Paul calls living in sin. But now they have a new life, a new direction toward God and holiness. Preachers often use the King James Version English when describing the event. Buried with him by baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. So death to sin means that we are no longer slaves to sin. And C, 
Death to sin means we receive a new nature. A new nature. We previously read verse 17 where Paul says that before we were saved we used to be slaves to sin. But he goes on in verse 18. Notice what he says. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. What is, it, what is it about conversion that causes us to become slaves to righteousness? When we are saved, born again, a new disposition is created within, within us. We are forever placed on a path toward righteousness. When we were, un, when we were unbelievers, under the power of sin, we had only one direction in life one disposition and that was always towards sin and away from God we were as Paul says slaves to sin sin was our master but when we were born again the power of sin was broken God broke the absolute dominion of sin over us we became as Paul says a new creation with a new direction, a new disposition, what we often call a new nature. Now, our natural inclination, our normal desire is toward God and holiness, which Paul describes as slaves to righteousness. Now, believers have a natural desire, an ability to obey God that was absent before we were saved. When Paul says we are now slaves to righteousness, he's not suggesting that we never sin, only that our natural inclination as believers is to want to please God by turning away from the sin that once enslaved us. It doesn't mean that we're insensitive to sin's enticements. We still feel the pull of sin. Although I believe sanctification is, is inevitable, it's obviously not automatic. Sanctification usually takes place slowly, over time. But it does take place in the life of a believer, and it must take place. Sanctification also requires our participation. We have a part to play. And that's what Paul will now turn to, our part in sanctification, our participation in becoming holy. So Paul says all believers have died to sin, but at the same time, he says, Roman numeral 2, believers must not let sin reign. Verse 12 says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. To let sin reign is to live like an unbeliever. God forbids that. How do we not let sin reign? How do we keep sin from reigning? I say, first of all, A, we must recognize our past sanctification. When I speak of our past sanctification, I'm referring to what God did to us, what he did to us at our conversion. Notice verse 11, Paul says, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, 
but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Our sanctification, God's work to make us holy, began the moment we were born again, the moment we were saved. God broke the power of sin in your life and my life that held us as captive slaves. And God gave us a new nature, a new power to obey Him. When Paul says, count yourselves dead to sin, he does not mean to imagine that something happened to you. He doesn't mean imagine something is true. The word count means to recognize true, recognize something as true, recognize that something actually took place, a real experience. And that's what happened to you if you were born again. Something happened inside of you. God gave you a new disposition, a new nature, a new desire for obedience. God has changed you for good. God has performed a miraculous thing in our lives when he saved us. And we need to count on it. We need to recognize that it's true. I'm not exaggerating when I use the word miraculous. I mean an actual miracle. The miracle of conversion. The miracle of regeneration, being born again. This miracle brings about a transformation so enormous that Paul describes it as death and resurrection here in chapter 6. Death to sin and a new life in Christ. Genuine conversion produces a fundamental change in us. We have died to sin and therefore we must lead a holy life. Sanctification is inevitable for the believer. It's not optional. There's no such thing as justification that does not issue in sanctification. There's no such thing as salvation from sin's penalty without an accompanying deliverance from sin's dominion. God does not allow the Christian to continue in sin, at least not indefinitely. It's very true that believers can backslide for a considerable time, even into grievous sins. But God is in control of our sanctification, and He has ways, He has His ways of getting hold of us. He has His ways of turning us back on the right path, the path of holiness. He can bring trials to get our attention. In Hebrews 12, 6, the Bible says, The Lord disciplines the one He loves, and He chastens everyone He accepts as His Son. And in verse 10, we're reminded that God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in His holiness. Also, in order to not let sin reign, I say B, we must participate in our present sanctification. We must participate. Notice verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its desires. Do not offer any part of yourselves to sin 
as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourselves to him as an instrument of righteousness. The work of sanctification that God began when we first trusted Christ must continue on. We usually call that continuation progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification requires our active participation. We have a part to play, an essential part to play in our own spiritual growth. We must not, as Paul says in verse 12, obey sin's evil desires. We must not, as verse 13 says, offer any part of ourselves to sin as instruments of wickedness. In 2 Corinthians 7, 1, Paul says, Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. We might simplify progressive sanctification as saying no to sin and saying yes to God. But we need God's help to do this. We need God's grace to do this. So God has provided what are commonly called means of grace. Things that we must make use of in order to enable us to grow and defeat sin and please Him. Of first, of first importance, of course, is God's Word itself. In His prayer in John 17, 17, Jesus said, Sanctify them by the truth, your Word is truth. And Peter says, like newborn babes, crave pure spiritual milk. That's the word. So by it you may grow up in your salvation. What is the Bible's part in our sanctification? Well, first of all, the Bible explains to us what sanctification is. It explains to us this in Romans 6 and in other passages. Scripture provides us with the norm and standard to identify what is right and what is wrong. It pinpoints sins that we must shun and virtues that you and I must embrace. It, it explains to us and shows us what holiness looks like. It explains what resources we have to battle the world, the flesh, and the devil. Therefore, obviously, we must hear the Word. We must study, meditate, and apply God's Word. This is our first and most important uh, thing that God has given us in the battle for sin and our growth in holiness. Dear friends, you and I must take great pains to heed the instruction we hear at CBC on a daily, on a weekly basis. Most everything, most everything that's preached from this pulpit is for the purpose of bringing about our sanctification. 
if we will listen and if we will apply what we hear week by week. Not only is scripture a means to our sanctification, but prayer is equally essential. The writer of Hebrew exhorts us to throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, Hebrews 12, 1. That's going to require a lot of prayer, this race, this persevering in holiness. Yes, we have to participate, but we need God's power, God's grace, God's help. And that comes through prayer. Paul tells us in chapter 8 of Romans that sanctification requires us to put to death the misdeeds of the body. But he begins that by saying, if you do it by the Holy Spirit, we need God's Spirit, we need God's grace, we need God's help. We need God's help every moment to battle sin and to submit to his will. The writer of Hebrews reminds us about our need for prayer. He says, let us then approach God's throne, the throne, God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And we need that every day if we're going to grow, if we're going to defeat sin, if we're going to obey God. And also indispensable to our sanctification is our fellowship with other believers here at CBC. Sanctification cannot be accomplished on our own. Remember what the writer of Hebrews says, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. That's sanctification. We spur one another on toward sanctification. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. One of the most important things we can do to aid in the sanctification of our fellow believers is to encourage them to pursue, pursue holiness. We need to encourage one another to pursue holiness. Holiness in others is an encouragement for our own spiritual growth. We also learn more about scripture from our interaction with fellow believers. We pray for their spiritual growth and they pray for us. So let's return to that 12-year-old Bill Combs. When I look back on that profession of faith I made then, as I said at the beginning of the message, it doesn't seem like I was truly saved at that time. It's sometimes hard to be certain about these things. But when I think back on my life back then, it's difficult to square my spiritual experience with what Paul says here in Romans 6 about sanctification. There was no real change, no evidence of a new nature, no desire to pursue holiness in my life. But on the other hand, we must not become too discouraged on the path toward holiness. We can't forget that sanctification is generally an uneven process. Sometimes there are spurts of growth, but often it comes very slowly, very slowly. 
But we should be able to look back at our lives, say we look back five years, we look back ten years, and we should be able to see a difference in the way we live, some evidence of spiritual growth. Sanctification is not something that happens automatically. It's not without its ups and downs. But it does happen. It must happen. And it should be happening in your life, my friend. It should be happening in my life. We ought to examine ourselves every now and then and see if our lives are lining up with what the Bible says about sanctification. It's not a good thing to do too much introspection every day. People can get very miserable and upset. But yeah, every once in a while, think back about our lives and reflect, am I really making progress? Am I really becoming more holy? Am I really turning away from sin? That's a good thing to do. May God help each one of us live a life that's more pleasing to him in the days ahead. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we're thankful for this book of Romans given by inspiration to your servant Paul. We do desire to understand the great truths found within this book, including what we looked at this morning in chapter 6, this vital instruction about sanctification. We're thankful that you had mercy on us when we were your enemies, that you, as chapter 8 says, predestined us, called us, justified us, and will one day glorify us. But until that day, in the present, now, you desire our sanctification, our growth in holiness, so we may be increasing and may increasingly become like your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we ask for your grace today and whatever days are ahead for us that this amazing work of sanctification may continue to transform us and this transformation will be evident in the life and ministry of our church. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.